You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hey everybody, it's Dan. We're going to do something just a little bit different this week. Um, I'm on vacation and instead of skipping a show or doing a greatest hits, we've decided to broadcast an interview that I did with Ari Shapiro. He's the White House correspondent for National Public Radio uh, and a terrific and funny and insightful reporter and guy. And when uh, the new book came out, when American Savage came out, Ari and I sat down for a long conversation at Town Hall in Seattle uh, about the book, about gay politics, about life, about fatherhood, about all sorts of things. Um, and it's a terrific conversation. It was originally supposed to be aired on public radio, but we used a few too many F-bombs uh, for it to make public radio. So we're sharing with all of you on the podcast. Uh, a quick programming note, there was a reception before the talk. So Ari and I had a couple of drinks at the reception before the talk and then somebody thought it would be really a good idea to send us out on stage with more drinks. So uh, we were a little tipsy at the beginning of the convo and we got tipsier and tipsier and tipsier as the convo went on. Uh, it's a good time and thank you to Ari for coming out to Seattle and uh, doing this event with me and I think everyone's going to enjoy it. Uh, so here's a very special and weird and off-topic episode of the Savage Lovecast. Please join me in welcoming Dan Savage and Ari Shapiro. Hi, everybody. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ari. How are you? I'm good. Um, these were some delicious cocktails. Yeah, we were at the VIP reception getting hammered before we came out here And they had promised to put a pitcher of water out here for us. But I thought, you know what? Why settle for water? Um, We should give a shout-out to Rachel's Ginger Beer, who made these delicious things. (laughs) They're delicious. Um, So what's kind of crazy is that I, I, like I assume many of you, have followed Dan for years. And we have, in a way, sort of had parallel lives where I've interviewed you a handful of times, and um, we uh, have... Friends in common. Friends in common. In fact, we have um, shared Jake Shears's bed a day apart from one another. <laughs> Jake Shears's guest bed. His in guest which, bed. Which we slept still, alone when we were there. We each slept alone one day apart. Um, <laughs> And And yet, this is the first time we've actually met in person. Today is the first time we've actually met in person. And you're even more handsome in person, Dan. You too, I have to say. You're a lot more handsome than you are on the radio. Which is, the weird thing is, (laughs) hearing your voice, I'm usually flat on my back, in my underwear, in bed with Terry, with the radio on. So it's very sort of... And does that help the marriage? Or is that more of a buzzkill? Sometimes things start when we're listening to you on the radio. Let's be honest. Have you ever showered with me? I have showered with you, yes. I was hoping that would be the answer. (laughs) Um, And you have a beautiful town here. Pardon? You have a beautiful city. This Washington is a nice place to be. Um, We could use a beautiful subway system. Yeah. Or mass transit system. Every city has room for improvement. That's true. Um, I'll tell you one big difference between this Washington and my Washington is that in my Washington, people go to the gym wearing a suit and tie. And so when 
Dan was waiting in the lobby of my hotel this evening, I came down um, in like a black suit jacket and a button-up shirt, and then I thought, oh, right, we're in the other Washington. Maybe I should change into something a little more. It is one of the things I love about Washington is nobody cares what you're wearing wherever you go. I love that, too. And so I wear dirty T-shirts and jeans wherever I go, including when I went to the White House with Terry for a reception, I went in dirty jeans. You wore a T-shirt and jeans to the White House? Yes. And a Evolve Already button. Wait, a Volvo button? An Evolve Already oh. button. When Obama said he was evolving on gay marriage, wow. I passed out Evolve Already buttons at the and White House. And do people wear it? Yes, people wore them. I've never been invited back, oddly enough. Um. <laughs> I have a question for you before we get to your questions yeah. for me about yeah. the stupid book. So you covered um, the Romney campaign. I sure and did. so all during the election, I would hear Ari Shapiro for the NPR with the Romney campaign. Mm-hmm. How many times did you want to punch Ann Romney or Mitt Romney as a gay man? Like, that had to be hard to cover the We Hate the Gays campaign for NPR and maintain uh, some sort of professional distance. So I have two answers to that question. One is there have been We Hate the Gays campaigns in recent American history, and the Romney campaign almost never really talked about gays. I mean, if you were gay and you're listening for it, there were comments. But There's a lot of dog whistling going on. Okay, but dog whistling is, I mean, like, there are We Hate the Gays campaigns in America. By that standard, like, there may have been dog whistling, but this was not a We Hate the Gays campaign per se, not to be a Romney apologist. The real answer to the question is, when I started as a reporter, I thought it would be very difficult to set aside my feelings and the stakes that I have in everything that happens in the world and in the country, as every person has stakes in what happens in the world and in the country. And in fact, I realized it's actually not that difficult. And when I enter the job as I'm trying to understand and explain where people are coming from and what people are thinking, then the stakes that I and every other person in the country may have on one issue or another is sort of irrelevant. To the same extent, you know, that like when I was covering the Justice Department and there was issues of Gitmo and torture and warrantless domestic surveillance, you know, everybody has stakes in that, and my stakes in it may have nothing to do with my being gay, but that's just not what I'm doing. It's not my job there. So it's actually kind of easy to just sort of I have a hard time setting it aside then because I wanted to reach through the radio and choke Mitt Romney Okay, so (laughs) this is a nice place to start the conversation about your book. First of all, happy Father's Day. Thank you. It's funny, I just saw my 15-year-old son today for the only time I've seen him today, and he didn't say that to me. Well. (laughs) Because he's 15 years old. Because he's 15 years old. I'm honored to be perhaps the first to say it. (laughs) And I also have to say to my brother who is in the audience and has four-year-old twins, happy Father's Day, Dan, wherever you are, right there. And to my husband, Terry, wherever Um, he went, happy Father's Day. And to Terry. So, okay, with that as prologue, and with you saying that you have a hard time setting aside differences, read, read the dedication of your book. Uh, For my father, who lives in a red state, watches Fox News and votes Republican, but loves me and mine just the same. That doesn't sound like a person who has a hard time setting things aside. Or was it hard to set that aside? It took me years to sort of reconcile with my dad. Um, It's funny, sometimes I get psychoanalyzed by the religious right because I'm classic, really close and tight with my mom, uh, who's passed away a few years ago but really tight with my mom and very estranged from my dad. And they like to say that causes homosexuality. No, that was caused by my homosexuality. My dad could sense that I was 
you know, a, a little faggot, a little sissy boy, and he didn't like that. And, you know, to take it easy on him, this was the 60s and 70s, before parents really had any resources or knew anything about parenting queer kids. And they believed that if they expressed their disapproval, they could nudge me away from this cocksucking thing. In and which they probably believe be that your toward. sexuality was a reflection on them, that they had done something wrong, because that's did. what they and were good, taught. good, responsible parents then didn't let their kids grow up to be gay cowboys, right? right. Um, and thought that they could prevent it, that they could take some... And so he was communicating to me, because he thought it would be a hard life, that I shouldn't do this, but we were, couldn't speak of it directly. And that just led to this 20-year estrangement, um, which had nothing to do with making me gay. It had everything to do with the fact that I was gay. Uh, but, you know, he said he was for Anita Bryant. He was uh, opposed to gay marriage and gay people having children. Or he didn't and, think and we did. And is he still? No. I mean, he still says sometimes stupid things like, it would be nice if you guys could just settle for civil unions, then it would be all okay. And or there would be this conflict. Or, no, he doesn't say that anymore. He's given he, up he, on trying to force vagina on me. <laughs> Here, Dan, have some pussy. No thanks, Dad. I'm full of cock. <laughs> They are recording this for broadcast on KUOW. I'm we'll thinking see if that, that part won't cut. make it on public radio. <laughs> um, but you found reconciliation notwithstanding. Yeah, every four years we have a little tense moment where I say, so, who are you voting for? And he says, oh, I'm voting for Romney. I'm voting for uh, George Bush. And we say, oh, you're voting for the people who want to amend the U.S. Constitution uh, and ruin our lives and ruin your grandson's lives and would prevent us from having become parents at all. Do you have any problem with that? Any conflict with that? Um, And then we don't talk for six months and then we bury the hatchet. So, you know, one of the interesting things for me about the Romney campaign was, as you mentioned, Romney supported a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. And when the campaign ended and the Prop 8 and DOMA cases were coming before the Supreme Court, there was a brief from a bunch of prominent Republicans in support of same-sex marriage, and the list included a lot of senior Romney aides, you know, people who I interacted with every day, and who, by the way, you know, on the campaign, we would spend more time with each other than we would with our families. So, like, you know, they knew I had a husband. They knew that, like, I'm a big mo. Um, And... I guess it didn't surprise me that they had those positions, but I was very surprised to see so soon after the well, campaign this is, this them signing on to those petitions in a brief before the court. This is my dad's argument always about anti-gay Republican politicians. They don't mean it. They're just playing to the base. And my response to my father is always, I don't care if you mean it when you're punching me in the face or if you're just trying to impress assholes who like to see me punched in the face. I'm still getting punched in the fucking face. Yeah. And so the insincerity... I don't think the insincerity of the Romney people and their anti-gay politicking gets them a pass. So the interesting thing now is in the Republican Party, the party as a whole, I think, has realized that this is not serving them at all now that more than 50% of Americans support same-sex marriage, and yet the individuals who make up the party keep saying things like, it's difficult to get pregnant through rape. And <laughs> so, I mean, this is like, you know... This is a, as, as a journalist covering politics, this is a fascinating story. Like, what is happening with the National Party versus the individuals who make it up? Well, there's nobody running for office. Rand Paul, uh, nobody positioning themselves for the 2016 run. Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, um, the rest of the clown Chris college, Chris Christie, who wouldn't sign the same-sex marriage bill into law in New Jersey, vetoed it after it uh, cleared the legislature in New Jersey. None of them will stake out a pro-gay position. But that was before the 2012 election, which I do think was... Well, he, a big he, earthquake for the Republican Party. Christie can sign it now. In New Jersey, he can unveto his veto and sign it now, and he won't. Yeah, but it's a difference between an affirmative action and a negative action. You know, not doing anything 
Anyway, I want to get back to Father's Day and fatherhood (laughs) and being a father. It's interesting to me that you talk about how your father didn't plan on you being the kind of person you turned out to be, and you write in the book about your own experience having a kid who did not turn out to be... I mean, I think you were much more open-minded that he would turn out to be whoever whoever God made him. Um, And yet, you really had to come to terms with the fact that he was not a little Dan Savage. No, he wasn't. Um, Terry and I, every once in a while, we look at each other and going, oh my God, we are raising the kid who beat us up in high school. (laughs) Did that feel like vindication? No, it does not. I can control you. (laughs) You're mine to manipulate. No, it doesn't feel like vindication. It feels like... um, Justice, uh, <laughs> like chickens coming home to roost. Yeah, basically, it, it, you know, in some ways, it's great. Um, we're we take the edge off him. You know, in another environment, another family, I think he could really kind of be sort of a knuckle-dragging homophobic monster. Explain what you mean when you say you raised the kind of kid who beat you up when you were kids. Well, he's just, you know, he's he listens to rap music and he's very <laughs> sort of like monosyllabic and. Um, but also very sensitive. You know, he's, he's multidimensional and he's yeah. full of contradictions as we all are. But he really is sort of the boy boy. You know, he snowboards, he skateboards, he doesn't like school. Um, he, you know, just wants to hang out with his friends and his friends are tough and he's tough. And we take the edge off him. And sometimes we think out there somewhere is a family that was adopting at the same time we were adopting and they got little princess sparkle fairy and magic boy. <laughs> And they're torturing that kid to death. That, those parents were like fundamentalist Christian conservatives. And that poor like Princess Sparkle Fairy Magic Pony Boy is in hell. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and really so, sad. And so, you know, maybe the universe was giving those parents the kid that they needed to come around and giving us the kid that we needed to bring around yeah. in a way. But the irony is so rich and thick that... Sometimes we, Terry and I will look at each other in the kitchen and go, holy shit, this is the kid who beat me up in junior high. And he's our son, and he loves us, and we love him, and we're taking the edge off him. And in some way, he takes the edge off. I'm a different man because of who my son is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you snowboard? I snowboard. I actually wrote this essay about snowboarding that I wish that I had included in this book. Um, at 40 years old, my son, at his insistence, Terry was a skier when he was a kid, and so he learned to snowboard when DJ learned to snowboard, when DJ was six and wanted to learn how to snowboard. And DJ, Do you have, like, mom panic about he's going to break his face? Oh, yeah, absolutely, every day. Um, and DJ was like, no, you have to learn how to snowboard, and so Terry made me learn how to snowboard, and I hated it until the day I could do it, and then I fell in love with it. But to be, like, at 40, like, learning how, the yeah. gay guy learning how to snowboard, and now I'm really really good at it. Like we double don't have black to brag, diamond. Dan. Huh? Everyone, we don't have to brag. Everyone here admires you already. I'm sorry. I'm really good at it. <laughs> and I'm like coming down the mountain with all these kids with like headphones and earbuds in and they're all listening to crap rap music like my son and I'm like coming and, down the mountain listening to a gypsy. Yeah. And if they could... <laughs> Everything's coming up roses. If they could hear me. If mama was married that live in a house as I carve the hill... <laughs> And in some ways, you know, we, we take the edge off him, we make him a little more sensitive, and he gives us a little bit more of a masculine edge than I think we would have had otherwise. Okay, will you read part of this book about... Um, this is, oh, wait, wait, but before I have you read this, there was one thing that I just have to ask about, which is, your husband is a disc jockey, and your child is named DJ. Does that get confusing? <laughs> yes, it does. Um, my husband's a DJ and our son is DJ, but we didn't name him DJ for DJing or for what Terry does. 
Um, it was Daryl for Terry's father, his late father, um, and Jude for my mother. And we, and we gave him his mother's last name, his biological mother's last name. Um, so he has a name from all three families that sort of circumstance and coincidence and luck and chance all brought together to create our family. It's really nice. I, I actually, it was, a, it was a lovely gesture giving him his mother's last name. We didn't think about the first time we got on an airplane with an infant that didn't have our last name. <laughs> that was hard. Homosexual child thieves. Right, that's how we were treated. Okay, will you uh, read, oh, my little notes. This is a section of the where book where you, you talk about, just start here and... Um, to the end? Still maybe there. Okay. We weren't the first people that DJ came out to as straight. Just as I came out to a couple of not-so-close friends to test the waters before breaking the big news to members of my immediate family, first my older brother Billy, then my mother, then my other siblings, then years later, my father, the first person DJ came out to his straight was John, a stay-at-home dad who lives across the street from his, with, with his wife, Mishy, and their four kids. Heartbreakingly, DJ swore John to secrecy, just as I had sworn my not-so-close friends to secrecy. DJ wasn't ready to tell us, he told John, because he wasn't sure how we would react. (laughs) Hearing that kind of broke our hearts. We thought we had communicated to him that we loved him no matter what, and we hadn't just told DJ that we would love him whether he was straight or gay. We went out of our way to make sure that he understood, and to make sure he knew we understood, that this wasn't a coin toss. We told him that it wasn't a 50-50 chance he would be gay or straight. No, the odds were most definitely in straight's favor. One night, years before DJ came out to us, DJ and I sat down and made a list of all the couples we knew. Same-sex couples in one column, straight couples in another. Most of the couples on our list were straight, I explained, because most people are straight. I told him that one day his heart and another organ, I neglected to mention at the time, (laughs) keeping the condo age appropriate, would let him know if he was straight or gay or if he fell somewhere in between. DJ finally told us he was straight about a week after he told John... We were standing in the yard in front of our house when DJ tossed it out. So, uh, you guys know I'm straight and stuff, right? (laughs) We said that we knew, not because John had told us, although John had, (laughs) but because we sensed it all along. We told him we loved him and that we never wanted him to be anyone other than the person that he is. We told him that his being straight didn't change anything, and then we told him to go do his homework to drive that final point home. It's really, you know, we hear these stories from one direction all the time, and we never hear them from the other direction. It's like when people debate whether homosexuality is a choice. Actually, hearing the story of the kid coming out to the parent as straight, even after all of your efforts to let him know that it was okay and he was most likely straight, it's a little bit eye-opening and a little bit heartbreaking. It is, and it was, and in a way we felt we had failed. When he was nine years old, um, he insisted that he was going to be gay when he grew up, which is, I wrote about at the time, which was, sometimes I get in trouble with gay parenting orgs because I write about these things we're not allowed to talk about um, as gay parents, because one of the religious rights arguments against gay people parenting or having children or adopting children is that our kids will want to adopt our sexual orientations, that they'll want to be gay when they grow up, or they will be gay when they grow up. And when he was nine, he insisted he was going to be gay like us. Um, And when he was four, he insisted he'd be gay like us. Because when he was four, he thought that meant you live with your best friend. Um, And when he was nine, he was convinced he would be gay because he hated girls. (laughs) We were like, no, we loved girls when we were nine. Right, right. That is... (laughs) That is not a pre-homosexual trait. That is a pre-heterosexual trait. 
And he doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on, I'm going to be gay, girls are icky, and then puberty and girls aren't so icky anymore. So he's stubborn, so maybe his hesitancy about coming out as straight was having to take it back and admit that we were right, which is not something he likes to that do. That he gets from his parents, clearly. Yes. <laughs> um, there is so much more in this book than just being a parent. So I, I want to move on. Broadly, one of the things that really struck me reading this book was that you have this extremely conventional some might say heteronormative life with your husband and your kid as a person who is a very vocal advocate for the possibility of people living extremely unconventional, extremely non-heteronormative lives. And I wonder if people tend to gloss over that. I mean, I actually saw something you posted once from some very Christian conservative group that said something like, the Holy Spirit has found Dan Savage against his best intentions because clearly he is living in the model that God intended for us, even as he advocates for people to live in other models. Crazy, right? Um, The people who really get up in my face mostly uh, about the heteronormative uh, lifestyle that we live are radical queers and radical sex activists who are convinced that I'm some sort of uh, heteronormative sellout. Uh, even though, you know, I'm out there arguing uh, against um, monogamy, the ideal, and how that can actually wreck a relationship, um, and much to the consternation when I wrote in the commitment about the fact that Terry and I weren't strictly monogamous, that we were monogamish, which is a term I coined to describe us. It's been adopted by straight people now, which is fun to see. <laughs> so at the, at the same time that our lives appear very sort of socially monogamous and traditional, we've allowed for, in our relationships and our lives, and been honest about what's more gay about us. And not just that it's good to be gay, good for gay people the way we live, but I think that straight people can learn something from the way gay people live and organize their relationships. I love the notion of you as this sort of like heteronormative mole in, in the alternative community, like trying to blow it apart from within. Yeah, there, like, there was uh, an anti-assimilation contingent in the Boston Gay Pride Parade, and they were carrying signs that said, fuck Dan Savage. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with that. Like... <laughs> What it, did they mean? Do you, right, I mean, like, do you think they meant it anatomically? I, d- I hope so, because <laughs> I, am, I, I am pro-assimilation with a wink. Like, I think we're being assimilated on our own terms. We've been very adamant, um, I, th- I think, gay people, that, you know, when it comes to marriage, when we want to marry, we hear that marriage is defined by children and religion and monogamy. Straight people don't say that to each other when they get married. Newt Gingrich certainly isn't good at this monogamy thing. Bill Clinton... <laughs> wasn't good at it. Nobody says that he's not still married to Hillary Clinton. David Vitter was certainly terrible at it. Um, We only hear that these things define marriage when we want to marry. It's as if there's one standard for straight marriage, which is anything goes, and another standard for us. We have to marry in 1913, and they get to marry in 2013. I, I have this theory that when people come out of the closet, they sort of tend to go in one of two directions. Either they feel like because they violated this one primary taboo, they have to strictly adhere to every other rule just because they've spent all their capital. To compensate. Right. Or they realize that because this one thing they were told their whole life wasn't right, maybe the other things they've been told their whole life might not be right either. And they, they, they picture themselves as this... That's taboo violator, and the more taboos I violate, the more authentically queer that I am. Right, and then there comes a point where you can choose to follow rules, not because they're rules, but because 
maybe these rules have some value and are worth choosing to follow. And I think you're seeing that uh, among a lot of queer people. The flip side of that is you see today straight people living what in the 70s and 80s was condemned as the gay lifestyle. That now all straight people live like queers do and did uh, until their late 20s, early 30s, and then they marry and settle down. Um, Everything that gay people used to be condemned for doing and was described as hedonistic by Jerry Falwell and Anita Bryant in the 70s and 80s. Straight people do that now, and they call it different things. Um, we had fuck buddies. They have friends with benefits. Um, we ho- they hook up. We tricked. Um, they really took gay life and made it straight. A- and more power to them. You know, there used to be this vast literature of the midlife crisis. Uh, where and, and you, that doesn't really exist anymore. Like John Updike writing Rabbit Run. Now it's like and all the twenty-five-year-old crisis or something like that. But yeah, 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 but you don't really read these books about the midlife crisis anymore because straight people now err on the side of having lives before they settle down. People used to have a midlife crisis because they married at twenty-two or twenty-one, and then they'd wake up at thirty-five or forty and think, "Hell, I, I didn't, missed everything. I didn't live." Right. And then after gay people came out and started living. Uh, openly, more straight people said, I'm going to live like the fags for a while. I'm going to move to the middle of a city. I'm going to have a lot of sex. I'm going to date around. I'm going to screw around. And then I'll figure out what it is I want, what it is I like. And then I'll marry that person who is that thing once I figure it out. And more of the gay people started saying, I'm going to live. Right. So um, straight people live like gay people until they're 30 and then settle down. And gay people live like gay people until they're 30 and then yeah. live like straight people. Um. I feel like generally in the arc of your career, you have gradually become more of a sort of first-person case study. Like, you, you didn't used to talk about whether you and Terry were monogamous or monogamish. There's a whole chapter ooh, in here about IML, about the leather convention that you guys go to. Terry is... Looks good in leather. Looks good in leather. Uh, and also, like, you know, has a, a, a very attractive Instagram account. Uh, that did not always exist. That's true. Um, was that a process of you sort of becoming more comfortable with getting the scrutiny and getting the arrows fired at you that inevitably come with this? Well, I, I never... Terry saved my sex column. There were a lot of sex columns in the early 90s that came and went. Um, and most of those sex columnists wrote about themselves. And when I first started writing Savage Love, I would write about myself in about every third or fourth column. Experiences I was having, people I was dating... And when I met Terry, he said, you can um, write about your sex life or you can have sex with me, but you can't have sex with me and write about your sex life. (laughs) So I stopped writing about my sex life in Savage Love, and Savage Love became only about my readers, and I think that's why it's had the longevity that it's had. These columns that were about the writer sort of broke faith with the readers eventually, inevitably, because the reader would would inevitably get the sense that you were faking it, that you were looking for material, that you were churning in and out of relationships, that you had something to write about. And they broke faith. Um, But when I wrote the books, when I wrote The Kid about adopting, I wrote about us and how we organized our lives and how we organized ourselves really sexually. And it wasn't like I had this grand plan to come out and say, you know, we're gay parents and we're a gay couple and we're monogamish. Um, It's that in The Kid, when I wrote The Kid, we were monogamous at Terry's insistence. So I mentioned that. And then years later, when I was writing The Commitment, we weren't anymore. And... I just felt like if we're not honest about this, we're going to get busted because the religious right is up my ass all the time. And so if, we're, if I don't talk about how we transitioned as so many long-term male couples do from a period of long-term sort of effortless monogamy to a little wiggle room, um, a little squish, hence monogamish, um, 
we will eventually be found out, exposed, and then accused of being hypocrites and liars who misrepresented ourselves and misrepresented our relationship to advance the gay agenda and blah, blah, blah. So we kind of came out reluctantly. We'd sort of checkmated ourselves by accident. Because I had talked about being monogamous and the kid, I had to then turn around and talk about the fact that we weren't strictly 100% all the time. Although, like I said to Stephen Colbert, is it adultery if I'm committing it at one end of a guy and Terry's committing it at the other end of the same guy at the same time? Did you come up with an answer to that Or is that just Chinese handcuffs for your dick? (laughs) For your dicks. Um, No, there is no answer to that. That term may be offensive in so many different ways. I know, right? Um, And the leather thing, and like kink is so... And leather is so stigmatized by the religious right. You know, you've got Peter LaBarbera and Bill Donahue and Nam and all these people running around saying they don't really want to get married. They don't really want families. They want to go to, like, look at IML, look at Folsom. They infiltrate these events and they take pictures and say, this is what the gay agenda really is. Harnesses and shirtlessness in bars. And the point I wanted to make is these things are not mutually exclusive, that you can have family and marriage and sort of a traditional life, and you can also jump in and out of these things too and and reconcile those. And straight people should learn how to do that. Straight people's marriages and and their sexual fulfillment in them would be better and stronger if they could sort of merge this idea of like traditional family and security and stability and love with sexual adventures because they make you feel alive. But there, the, the, the conservative Christian rights argument is people like Dan Savage want to redefine marriage. And you basically argue, yes, like, I want to redefine marriage so that monogamy is not required and mandatory. Monogamy is not required. It is not mandatory. Bill and Hillary Clinton are fucking married. <laughs> right? Straight people don't require monogamy. Monogamy is optional. And we want equal rights, not double standards. Not we have to be monogamous and David Vitter can see prostitutes. So I want to get back to the term monogamish and also the term Santorum and also... (laughs) The substance Santorum. And also the phrase, it gets better. And there is at least one other that I'm not thinking of right now. GGG, DTMFA. You are like a meme machine. (laughs) BuzzFeed must be, like, tapping your phone lines to figure out how you do it. I don't know how I do it. These things just pop into my head. Really? Because you've been more successful at creating memes than anyone I've ever heard of. Thank you. Um, And I don't know where it comes from. Okay, well, that was an uninteresting answer. To to your point... Um, Wait, wait. (laughs) Quickly, though, to your point about gay people want to redefine marriage, I want sort of a looser... Uh, the things that I talk about about marriage are ways I want to strengthen marriage, not redefine marriage. The issue with the redefinition of marriage is that straight people redefine marriage already. Straight people redefined marriage about 100 years ago to be the legal, uh, the legal union, the commitment of two legally autonomous individuals, period, the end. These two people get to decide for themselves what that means to them. And they're married, and they're, they just get to make each other next of kin. Marriage is no longer a gendered institution Um, by law, as straight people practice it. And more credit to straight people for redefining marriage because it had been gendered and it was basically sexual slavery for women and labor slavery for women and chattel slavery for women for millennia. And eventually straight people shrugged that off. And the problem is there's no longer a logical argument that straight people can construct for excluding same-sex couples from the institution of marriage as straight people practice it. 
and live it, which is the trap that the antis are in right now. Because they want to impose on us standards they no longer impose on each other or other straight people. For life, married, monogamous children, religion, all optional if you have opposite sex genitalia, right? And for us, suddenly all these things are definitional. These things that do not define straight marriage are definitional when we want to get married. So I'm not seeking to redefine marriage. I want into the institution as straight people have redefined it and practice it because we belong in that institution too. Okay, want to... I mean, marriage is about love and commitment. Um, Stephanie Kuntz, who uh, is a prophet evergreen, wrote a terrific book. Um, Wait, didn't she write vampire novels? Like teen vampire novels? No. That's Dean Kuntz. Yeah, something. Sorry, yeah. Um, marriage, a history. How love conquered marriage. And love is what... 300 years ago, social conservatives were against marrying for love because love is an unstable element. Um, and if property you, is stable. And property is stable. And if your wife is property and the, 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 it was a property transaction, that's easy to keep together. If it was about affection and a mutual desire to be together, what if you fall out of love? Then the marriage is over. Okay, so I want you to read a section that is the um, creation story of one of these enduring memes, which, well, as the passage will reveal... You can't take 100% of the credit for this one, but um, you could just start here and read to there. I've kept in touch with the person who came up with the winning definition for Santorum over the last decade. He's debated coming forward and claiming his share of the credit, and he deserves the lion's share, but he feels potential personal and professional repercussions. Since I can't name him, let's call him Frothy Mix. (laughs) The entire definition, including Frothy, came to me at once, Frothy Mix told me on the phone. I also kind of knew it would win and become a big enough deal that Rick Santorum himself would hear about it. It might surprise some people to know that Frothy Mix is straight and that he grew up in a deep red state. Otherwise, I am probably basically who people think I am, says Frothy Mix, an atheist progressive in a big liberal city who went to impressive-sounding schools and has held some of the kinds of jobs right-wingers might associate with a vast liberal conspiracy. In terms of my personal life, though, I am not a swinger or particularly kinky. But unlike far too many of his fellow straights, Frothy Mix recognizes that politicians like Rick Santorum threaten his freedom too. Santorum didn't just say that gay people don't have a right to have sex, though that's bad enough, Frothy Mix told me. He's on record basically saying that no one has a right to sexual privacy. We should keep in mind that it hasn't been that long since we've had the right to have a sexual relationship outside of marriage or with a person of another race. And Frothy Mix didn't decide to punk Rick to punk Rick Santorum simply for laughs, he was genuinely outraged by Santorum's remarks. What really got me was the way that he used such dehumanizing language so casually, Frothy Mix said. I wanted to make it harder for a sitting U.S. senator to feel like he could say something like that in the future. Why was he so sure his definition would win? Well, first of all, I knew most people were going with a verb, said Frothy Mix, and I'd have the noun category basically to myself. It is about the worst thing you could call Mr. Santorum, but there's nothing inherently gay about it. And I knew Frothy would work sort of like a hook in a pop song. It would make people think of lattes and beer, which just makes it that much more gross. Still, I've been continually surprised that it took off the way it did and that it has stuck around for so long. I realize I sort of went into that without establishing that everybody here knows what the alternate definition of Santorum is. The frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex. (laughs) And for frothy mix, who came up with the definition, he thinks the most important word in that sentence is frothy. Frothy. And I think the most important word is sometimes. Because (laughs) if you're doing anal sex 
properly, there will be no Santorum, the substance, or the senator in the room. I just have to think the marketing departments across the country are studying this. Like, how do we get Coca-Cola to be as sticky? Sticky, pardon, yeah. sticky. <laughs> That is the word that marketers would use. Um, so at some point, we're going to turn the uh, floor over to the audience. In like five minutes. In like five minutes. Okay, good. So um, I'm a, I, I imagine that as a sex advice columnist, people must come up to you at parties the way people come up to doctors and say, what is this bump? Or people come up to you and ask you about Air Force One. Yeah, except I like talking about Air Force One. (laughs) Do people come up to you at a cocktail party or a dinner party and say, by the way, is what I'm doing normal? Yes, all the time. That must be awful. People come up to me in airports and ask me questions about rimming. And this literally happened um, a while ago, a a long while ago. I'm in an airport and this person is in line and starts asking me these questions about rimming. And I look at this person and I go, and this is my seven-year-old son. Maybe you should email me. Because we're in a line for sandwiches at Midway Airport. And this is my fucking seven-year-old son. It also never occurred to me, you write in the book, that the sex advice industry is, or just the advice column industry, is totally skewed towards women. Absolutely. Women ask for directions, women ask for advice. So a lot of professional advice dispensers, my colleagues in the advice industrial complex, pander to women... And I think the reason I get so many letters and questions from men, but also tons from women, is that I write in a way that doesn't pathologize, because I don't pathologize male sexuality. Um, You know, if you go to Dr. Phil, he'll tell you that your husband looked at porn, and that's akin to cheating, and he has a porn addiction. And I'll tell you, yeah, your husband looked at porn, and if you divorce him, you will marry some other guy who will look at porn, because all men look at porn, and you need to get the hell over it. Even if the advice industry is skewed towards women, isn't your advice probably going to help the women more in the long run? I do think so, yeah. Like, be realistic. You want, you know... Well, so why is Dr. Phil, who's presumably trying to help women... He does more I mean, not dan- to harp on Dr. Phil, but, you know, the he does advice a lot of industrial harm. complex. I was interviewed once to come on Oprah and talk about infidelity, uh, like, by a producer. And I was like, you are not going to have me come on Oprah to look Oprah in the face and tell her she's part of the problem when it comes to divorce and And adultery. so they didn't have you on No, the they didn't have me on. How I'm talking to the producer going, I'm going to look Oprah in the face and say, you are part of the problem. You are one of the reasons why people divorce after a routine almost inevitable in any multi-decade long-term relationship infidelity. And you should be telling people that when and if this happens, you should be able to work through it. It doesn't mean it doesn't have to feel like a betrayal. It isn't a violation. If you had a monogamous commitment, it's definitely a violation. But it happens so often that we should prep people going into marriage to work through this, to get through this, as opposed to defining it as a relationship extinction level event. Because then it will be inevitably one of those. Remember when Bill and Monica and Hillary blew up? And there was anger at Hillary then. Oh, there still is. For not divorcing him. Yeah. For not doing the right thing. Right. And leaving Oh, and then him. what was so interesting was when Huma, Hillary's aide, married to Congressman Weiner, was in a very similar situation, and there was this incredible New York Times magazine, well, the profile itself was, you know, a profile of them, but this incredible moment that described right after, you know, the dick pics on Twitter blew up, Huma staffed Hillary on a trip that the Secretary of State was taking overseas, and they had these long one-on-one conversations, and God, to be a fly on the wall. Yeah, really. I want to read Huma's book about I mean, like, that. Who better to give Huma advice in that moment than Hillary? Yeah, and what I hope Hillary said was, out of the frying pan into the fire, yeah, that's awful, and you will get probably the same or similar from any other man you marry. You have... Because men are pigs. <laughs> and women are too, but women are better at getting away with it. 
Wait, 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 wait. Okay, you've got to explain that. There's a new book out by Daniel Bergner, What Women Want, um, The Science of Female Desire, and everyone should read it. What do you mean when you say men are pigs and women are too, but women are better at getting away with it? Women, I think, cheat less, and women don't have as much to get away with because women are socialized and terrorized, really, by the culture into shutting down sexually in ways that men are, you know, women are slut-shamed and men are stud-praised. You're and saying the man who sleeps around says gets, praised. Is, gets told what a stud, and the woman who sleeps around gets told what a slut. Right. Imagine if Hillary had been cheating on Bill. We wouldn't have seen skits on SNL about what a sort of lovable rogue and a dog Hillary was. Right? And yet those are the skits we saw on SNL, that it was kind of something that we could appreciate about Bill, where his appetites and his lust made him more sort of authentically masculine and more relatable. But if it had been Hillary who had been sleeping with interns and doing exactly what Bill had done, she would have been just pillaged. Banished. Yeah, she would have been banished and stabbed and dragged through the mud forever. So women have less sort of wiggle room, less play, less ability uh, than men to get away with being dogs. But women are just, have just as much desire. And as we see with the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, are just as kinky and freaked out and weird as men are. So you have... Very clear, very understandable rules or guidelines or whatever you want to call them, which are you know laid out here and in your columns over the years. You have a chapter called "Cheating is Never Okay Except When It Is." Except when it is, <laughs> for which I'm getting yelled at by the religious right. Um, one of many things that you get yelled yeah. at by the religious right. I wake for. up in the morning and I make toast, and somebody from the religious right is I mean, yelling. At half me. your Twitter feed is like a back and forth with one conservative Christian or my another. boyfriend Peter Lababera. <laughs> So how did you come up with these rules? Was it trial and error over time? And because the thing is, not only are they very clear and very understandable, but they are very iconoclastic. And maybe things have changed now, but certainly when you started advocating for these principles, nobody else was. Nobody else was. I, I think hopefully people are getting a bit more French about these things and a little bit more realistic. Yeah, but how did you... So, like, you were ahead I'm of the curve. Utilitarian, okay. and I want, I want relationships to work. I want... Um, relationships to succeed over I mean, time. If you, if you if you assume the best of everyone, then everyone wants relationships. But you have to, to be work. realistic about who people are and what humans are, and people fail. And what we don't have built into our understanding of relationships is humanity and failure and forgiveness. I would get letters from people who would open with, "I would do anything for my partner. I would take a bullet for my partner. I'd walk through fire for my partner. My partner cheated on me. I cannot forgive my partner." It's like really, fuck you. <laughs> that. <laughs> You can't tell me that you love them so much that you would take a bullet, someone could shoot a hole through you, and you can't find it in yourself to forgive that person that you love that much, that, that forgiveness is the, is the line you can't cross. You jump in front of a bullet, but you can't bring, it, bring yourself to forgive. And I'm not talking about a serial adulterer who crapped all over you for 30 years and you know, humiliated you in every possible... I'm talking about like that one-off. And... So, I guess, I just, did you I want, come into the column with these ideas fully formed, or did they evolve over the years of responding to questions from a million different scenarios? Responding to questions from a million different scenarios. Also, with my own personal life experience, um, I had been with a guy for five years, and we had sort of fundamental issues of sexual incompatibility, and we both ended, I cheated first, but we both ended up cheating on each other, and it was such a, like a train wreck, and it wasn't a train wreck because of the actual cheating, it was the lying and the misapprehension and the misrepresentation of who we were. And if there was a way to like diffuse those issues, maybe the relationship could have survived, but there wasn't a way to diffuse those issues. And I want to diffuse those issues for people in their relationships. And 
I get accused of overemphasizing the importance of sex, and I actually think I'm under, I, I'm, I'm trying to lower the importance of sex. I'm trying to take the focus off it. I say to people, um, you've been married for 20 years, you have two children, you have the shared property, you have this sort of position, really, as a couple, uh, you've brought these two families together, uh, there's this love, there's this affection, you're good partners, all of that has to weigh, has to be given more weight than one goddamn blowjob on a business trip. But what I'm told is the one goddamn blowjob on a business trip should be given more weight than this by people who then accuse me of overemphasizing the importance of sex. Yeah, because right. this should end a relationship. That blowjob, all of this has to be thrown away because of that, that moment's cheating, that infidelity that can be the husband or the wife doing it. 60% of men, 40% of women in long-term, multi-decade relationships cheat at some point. They're not all married to each other. Almost inevitable that every long-term couple, there's going to be an infidelity in that relationship. And what then? And what I'm saying is, mm, maybe you should focus on everything else your marriage is about and not obsess about this betrayal. It's still a betrayal. Forgive, get through it, work through it, apologize. But maybe this shouldn't be given the weight of this history and connection and love and affection and bond. And then I, it just drives, it makes me, it makes my head explode that the people who accuse me of overemphasizing the importance of sex are the ones who then say that one blowjob has to be given more weight. You have a great line where you say um, people should think of their sex lives as a hostage negotiation where they are the hostage, the hostage taker, and the negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and we are. And that's what's wonderful about sex in a way. We are sort of all complicit and all implicated by it and all held hostage to it. Was it Socrates who said at like 80-something, I am finally free of an irrational master? <laughs> I'm looking forward to 80. <laughs> well, just to, just to we see what see, that's like. Should we see what you all want to talk about? Uh, the way this will work, because we don't have mics out there, is if you have a question, raise your hand, and you have to be succinct, because Ari will have to repeat your question so everyone can hear it. Oh, thank you very much. He was saying that the world his daughter grows up and will be a better place thanks to It Gets Better, which is an aspect of your life that we did not discuss at all, which... Which uh, I always like to say, you know, we, the It Gets Better Project won an Emmy, and Terry and I got to go up on stage at the Emmys and accept this Governor's Award Emmy. Um, the It Gets Better Project is what it is and has had the impact that it's had, not because Terry and I made 100,000 videos, but because so many other people jumped in, shared their stories, reached out, helped... So uh, on behalf of everyone who made the It Gets Better Project what it is, I get to accept your thanks. But Terry and I made one video, and, and we asked other people to make videos. But other people made the project what it is. Yes, in the back. Uh, the question is, being monogamish may sound all well and good, but it's an emotional sense of betrayal comes creeping in, and how do you deal with that? You know, when you, get, when you talk about monogamous versus not monogamous relationships... Part of the problem is there's, everyone knows exactly what you mean by monogamous. What those two people are doing is clear and unambiguous and the same across all successfully monogamous couples. And many successfully monogamous couples are actually not monogamous, but their friends and family don't know. Uh, and they may each not know, right? But when it comes to monogamish or not monogamous or open, that is so varied um, and it can be everything from uh, this couple that has had the occasional three-way or they've gone to a swingers party once in a great while to they're completely open and they have other partners with whom they have emotional bonds. It can stretch from we had a three-way a few times to complete polyamory and there's this other partner or other partners around. And jealousy 
is something that you have to handle. I like to say to people that you know, feelings of jealousy doesn't disqualify you from being not monogamous. It's how you handle those feelings and process them that allows you to demonstrate that you are qualified to be in a not monogamous relationship. And when mono- people in monogamous relationships say to me, well, isn't jealousy an issue in a not monogamous relationship, and a monogamous relationship? And I always say to them, isn't it an issue in a monogamous relationship? Doesn't it touch your relationships too, even if you're not acting on it? Um, which isn't to be glib. Of course, there's the reality of the connection perhaps that can grow with someone else when you're allowed to perhaps pursue something with somebody else. But it's how the couple handles it, how they understand it, how they define the limits and terms of their relationship, and then whether those limits are being violated. You know, if your agreement is something can happen with somebody else every once in a great while under these circumstances without any emotional connection, and your partner then goes and does that, you know, violates that agreement, um, acts on it, you know, forms an emotional bond with somebody else, that can blow everything up. But that isn't something that just people in monogamous relationships face. People in monogamous, monogamous relationships face that potentiality too. Um, and the processing of it, whether you're monogamous or monogamous, is the same. You have to have good communication. You have to talk stuff out. Um, you have to put that other person, if you are uh, partnered for the long term, you have to put each other's feelings first. Um, and I have found that it's, you know, my experience, not personally, but observing a lot of people in not monogamous relationships, is that the couple, the socially monogamous versus sexually monogamous couple, that partner bond always has to be what's being honored and protected and held up, up to and including both partners having veto power over outside partners if they feel like it's threatening the primary bond. Um, And that can be tricky. I'm not saying, I'm always telling people that there's a, there are definite upsides to monogamy around paternity, disease, emotional security. Absolutely, that monogamy can be simpler. There are upsides to non-monogamy, though, around feeling alive, around variety, around um, sexual possibility, and, that, and being able to get needs met that maybe can't be met at home. And it sounds trivial. Like, oh, so you want to get tied up and your partner doesn't like to do that, and so you're going to end a marriage over that? People do, though. Um, sexual frustration uh, and denial isn't trivial if you're the person who's experiencing sexual frustration and denial for decades. I had a friend once say, I'm not sure that monogamy is so essential, but the alternative just seems so fucking complicated. It is. <laughs> Absolutely. But then what you see are people who go from monogamous relationship to monogamous relationship to monogamous relationship. You actually see a lot of instability because the only way to get what you need is to get rid of the partner you're with now. There's a lot, you know, we have serial monogamists who claim that they're morally superior to people who are not monogamous, but are actually together in longer. I've had people say to me, oh my God, you and Terry, you can't really love each other because you're not monogamous. And I look at them and say, so who are you with now? And they're like, they're on their fourth marriage or their third marriage. It's like, you know what, Terry and I are still together. Fuck you. So maybe it's actually working to stabilize our relationship as opposed to destabilize it. You know, monogamy, non-monogamy, when it saves a relationship, it never gets the credit, right? When anybody is in an, when any, uh, I'm not going to say this very well. We're drinking, by the way. Um, well, I For am. those of you I listening mean, at home. You've got an unopened bottle of champagne Well, I've been here. knocking, the, I'm a lightweight. Um, uh, when, uh, there's a question in the back here. With apologies for uh, paraphrasing, 
uh, a very formative relationship that ended when the partner died of cancer. Wow. <laughs> right you don't cue. really pop champagne corks on dying cancer. Of cancer but... <laughs> Sorry about that. Tonight we're going to have to make an exception. Let's celebrate. <laughs> we're still here. Sorry. Classy so as you, always. When do you mention your partner when you're dating somebody new? I've talked about this a lot on my podcast. Uh, not this specifically, but something similar. When you tell somebody you have HIV, you're telling them one thing about yourself. Their reaction tells you almost everything you need to know about them, right? When you share your history with someone, you're telling them something that they really should value and honor if they're in love with you because it shaped you. And it made you the person that they're with now. And so if they're threatened by or angry about your connection with this person who was in your life and so important to you for so long, who was taken from you by disease, and they have a negative reaction to you sharing that information, goodbye. They don't deserve you. They don't really love you if they can't love that part of you too. If they can't love and honor and respect the partner who came before they did, um, they're not worthy of your affections because they're not really into you. Because that was so, such an important part of who you are. And that said, what we look for in people that we date, that we're thinking of partnering with, is good judgment, right? Somebody who on the first date, blah, 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 about their late partner is not is displaying poor judgment because some people are likely to react negatively to that or feel weird about it. Um, so that you wait a while for them to get to know you and then when you start sharing your histories with each other, it comes up naturally at an appropriate time. Awesome. Anybody worth your time is going to react very positively to that. And if they react negatively to that, they've told you everything they need to know, that you need to know about them, which is they're gone. There's a, yes, in the yellow, yellow, is that a yellow shirt? Yes, go ahead. The question is, if you have sex outside the relationship, do you always tell? There's a chapter in the book about this. But not about us, because Terry doesn't let me write about us. Um, we're completely and entirely honest with you. I coined the term monogamish to s- describe me and Terry, because we are so much more monogamous than not. Um, 99.99% of the messing around or the intimacy that we share is with each other. It's just we have a little squish, a little wiggle room around the edge. But we're uh, full disclosure and um, complete honest and openness at all times. And do you think that's a rule that needs to apply to every relationship? No, I don't. I don't think you can be prescriptive about these things. Some people have don't ask, don't tell policies where I realize that this is unrealistic to expect 50 years of monogamy. If something happens, I just don't want to know about it. Do it at a time and in a place where my sort of emotional and sexual security does not feel threatened. Don't humiliate me and don't tell me. And a lot of people have that kind of either explicit or implicit uh, agreement with their partners. And a lot of what I talk about in the chapter about non-monogamy or cheating is never okay except when it is, is that, you know, you're with somebody 30, 40 years, 20, 30, 40 years, one partner may be done with sex and the other isn't, and what then? Um, Sometimes people make an accommodation later that early on in life you may not have thought you would be capable of making um, or willing to make. Uh, so a lot of the sort of it's never okay to cheat except when it is cases that I cite in the book are people who have been together 30 years and one person is just no libido and done and it's not always the woman which is the stereotype a lot of these are the men 
And the other person is like, I need a permission slip so I can stay sane and stay married, and they get it. And I don't think that those marriages aren't marriages and aren't loving, and that isn't a loving thing to do for someone under those circumstances. People are clapping, and their spouse is staring at them out of the side, <laughs> giving him the side eye. Can we both clap? Oh, no, I guess not. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounded like the first part of your question was, if you are deeply connected to somebody emotionally, but the sex life is going wrong for one reason or another, what's the solution? Well, the advice I often give to people whose sex lives are non-existent or dull is sometimes to be patient, that the tide can roll out and the tide can roll in. If while the tide is out, you allow yourself to be consumed with bitterness and anger, the tide will never roll back in. Or when it does, you won't, be, you won't know how to swim anymore. Um, there are times in any long-term relationship where there may be a fallow period. Um, and that can either, you know, you can let that salt the earth for you, or you can let that feel like a period of renewal. Um, and, you know, it's all going to bloom again. Um, Catholicism t- is coming out. My Catholicism? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get to the mustard showing. seed in a moment. Um, <laughs> but... But what was the question? It was Ari's idea to drink while we talked, and now I can't remember what the hell we're <laughs> I doing. I think you answered it. Be patient. Be patient. You know, it can roll in and can roll out, but also be giving and understanding and loving. And, um, you know, people can be stressed, and, and life can be long. Um, and I've talked to people who, you know, the tide rolled out for four years, uh, and they were able once four years went by with really not a lot of sex uh, when the, that connection sort of reemerged because neither had allowed themselves to become either consumed with bitterness or guilt uh, and insecurity that when it began to bloom again, they were both there for each other and it took back off. You know, one of the things that strikes me about what you describe, both in general terms and you and Terry, uh, is that I think so many of us grow up where our primary image of a long-term relationship is our parents, which seems just sort of in stasis forever. And what if your parents were swingers? I probably wouldn't have known about it. I just want to put that image into your head and your brother's head. <laughs> I, hope I, I hope I wouldn't have known about it. I hope to God I wouldn't have known about it. But, Which is actually part of the problem. You know, there's a well, lot of, I mean, there's, there's so a lot of people in long-term... People say anybody who's in a non-monogamous relationship or they had three ways or they swingers, all those people break up. All those relationships fail. All non-monogamous relationships fail. And the problem is the ones that you've heard about that were not monogamous fail. When a relationship fails because there was cheating or swinging or three ways or openness, the openness gets the blame. There are so many people out there in successful long-term relationships who are not monogamous that you know, but you don't know you know them because they're your parents and they're not going to burden you with those mental images. Right. And the monogamy... I am. (laughs) Thanks for that, Dan. (laughs) Your dad's committing adultery at one uh, end of the... But it sounds like the monogamy is one part of a larger issue, which is that we don't think that marriages that last decades are relationships that require constant work and evolution and analysis and conversation and struggle with difficult issues. We think of dating as a process of getting to know one another that sort of ends when you get married and then you just sort of die or die or something. Right. And if the only way you can feel alive again is to end the marriage, you will. And do we want people to end their marriages, or don't we? Who else has a question? <laughs> Way in the back there. As a parent of a teenage boy, is it easier or harder? You, I will disclose, say in the book that the most important sex talk you had to give... I messed up. You messed up. I did. Um, 
we had all the sex talks with DJ, age appropriate. Uh, and when he was about nine or ten years old, one day he came down into the kitchen and jumped up on the counter and looked at me and stared at me with his air narrowed his eyes. And I was like, what? What? And he said, you and daddy have sex for no reason. <laughs> Two men can't make a baby. And I was like, oh, right. We talked about sex, but we left out 99.99% of the sex that people have, gay or straight, which is sex for pleasure and intimacy and connection and to cement the partner bond and for fun. And we had had the reproductive biology talk about sex and sexuality, but we'd left out all of it, most of it, which is (laughs) sex for pleasure. And I had to explain to him at that moment, oh, no, yes, straight people, they have sex to make babies once or twice, or in John and Mishi's case, four times, and then they're done, and then they keep having sex. And Daddy and I have sex for the same reason straight people do most of the time. Um, which is for fun and pleasure and intimacy and connection and to show our love for each other. Um, and so, you know, I want to go easy on people who mess that conversation up, as I messed it up. Um, the hard part about talking to your kid about sex is some parents want that to be a conversation, and your kid does not want to have that conversation. <laughs> and so parents will try to initiate a conversation, and the kid will shut it down, and the parent will be feel inhibited and insecure, and the parent will shut it down and stop. And what you have to go into those conversations with is a plan, an outline, and a download. Like, I'm going to tell you about masturbation, uh, or I'm going to tell you about birth control, I'm going to tell you about this, and you're going to be in hell for the next 20 minutes, but this is info you need. And so you, you, the shtick is, you have to act like you already know it, you have to act like I don't have to tell you, but I have to make sure you've heard this from somewhere. And then and do I, you write it down someplace, because when they're talking to you, you assume that they are, when you're talking to them, yeah, you assume they push they're just like, so hard. La, right. la, 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 la. So I like went into it with like points I wanted to get across. And I said to him, DJ, when we had these conversations, which Terry always said I had to have. Um, Terry is like not Obviously. into these. Right. I went and said, it's okay. If you stop protesting, this will be over sooner. (laughs) You may already, you're telling me you know all of this, and you may know it, but I don't know that you know it, and I have to make sure you know it, so I need to say it out loud. And so stop telling me to shut up, because it's just drawing this out. (laughs) And that was the conversation about masturbation and birth control and all sorts of things. And he still hasn't gotten anyone pregnant yet, as far as you know. The night is young, though, you know? (laughs) It's summer vacation. Anything could happen. There's a woman whose hand is silhouetted against the stained glass. Could good sex ed put you out of business? I think was the thrust of that question. I joke when they pass these uh, anti-sex ed laws in Tennessee, um, where they're basically not allowed to teach sex education anymore, that... You know how the Republicans are always really great at labeling laws in ways that, are, like the Patriot Act, that make them you can't vote against this, or they label them the death tax in ways you can't vote for it. Um, but I think they should call them the Dan Savage Full Employment Act, or the Dan Savage Job Security Protection Act. The Democrats should start calling it that because the right's demagoguing about me anyway. Um, yeah, good sex ed could put me out of business, which is I'm really relieved to be a sex advice columnist in America. Because we don't have good sex ed, and we never will, because Canada got the French, Australia got the convicts, and we got the Puritans. (laughs) And we're stuck with them. I would like to trade the Bible Belt for Quebec, but the French won't go for it. Or the Canadians won't go for it. It's amazing to me that our Puritan roots 
after, you know, centuries of immigration, still hold fast. I, I, I think one of the things that I most came to appreciate covering the Romney campaign is that there really is an American identity that is distinct from other countries' identity and that it is more than just pablum, more than just cliche. It is a real thing that, you know, ties places as different as Washington, D.C. and Washington State together. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, part of that is the Puritan heritage that you describe. And that it's migrated out of New England to the south. Like, we talk about the Puritans, and they were, you know, Jamestown and Virginia, and they were New England. And, but it's sort of, I don't know, shit I'm flows sure downhill. It all, like, ended up in... works describing why this has happened. There must be. I haven't read them, though. There's a question here. So the question is, there is so much more information about sex available at our fingertips now than there ever had been before. How has that changed people's experience of sexuality? Um, I certainly think people are more kink aware. People are more aware of the sexual diversity. Um, you know, the questioner also asks, you know, if this is the case, if we have more information, why the suicides, why the bullying? David Sedaris wrote a great essay in the It Gets Better book in the collection uh, about when he was a gay kid, um, it was possible to fly under the radar. Um, and that was also true for me a little bit, that uh, there, wasn't this, there wasn't as much awareness of sexual diversity, so you didn't actually think there were any gay kids in your school. Gay was something people were in Greenwich Village, maybe, if you'd even heard of it. You know, once upon a time, gay kids would grow up thinking they were the only one in the world. Straight kids certainly wouldn't think there was any such thing as a gay kid. But now there's all this awareness, and it, in a way, that awareness has been a double-edged sword. It's made the world a better place to be an openly gay adult and a actually more difficult place to be a gay, lesbian, bi, or trans kid. Because you can't be the weird kid without any more being perceived as the queer kid. And if you're watching your parents beat up gay people at the ballot box and with their checkbook, and you're listening to your preacher beat up gay people from the pulpit, you will feel empowered to walk into your high school and beat up the gay kid. That uh, two generations ago, you wouldn't even have been aware of the existence of gay kids. Um, so it is, the, the more information out there is actually made things better and in some ways made things more difficult uh, for people who are vulnerable uh, in ways that we were vulnerable but not as marked 30 years ago. And it, it, you think about Liberace, there was just his Liberace biopic, and like how gay was that guy? <laughs> and nobody thought he was gay because gay was literally the worst thing you could think of someone. So people would people wouldn't let themselves think that of somebody. They liked Liberace, so he couldn't be gay. Um, when you were a little well, queer listen, kid... Listen, people, like, you know, housewives in the Midwest thought the same thing about Anderson Cooper for a long time. That's right. <laughs> so I guess it lives now a little bit. But when you were a queer kid, as I was, you know, growing up in the 70s, you know, my parents and their friends and other people, they, they couldn't think that of me because it was literally the worst thing you could think of someone. So they wouldn't think that of Bill and Judy's son because that would be an evil thing to think. And so that bought me some time and space in a way that a queer kid now, 13 years old, doesn't have that time, doesn't get that purchase, doesn't get that buy-off. I have not sort of looked over in this direction at all. Are there questions on this side of the room? The question is, does the feedback you get from the people who are coming to you with questions, uh, do, do people respond differently based on their race and ethnicity? I get emails, and so unless somebody offers... Uh, their, to discuss their race or ethnicity unless they mention it. I don't hear about it. Um, the way I perceive it, though, is it's really more about class um, that can really impact somebody, that a lot of what we mean when we talk about race and ethnicity when it intersects with sexuality or sexual expression or gender expression, that it almost is always class that has a bigger impact. 
um, than, than, than race or ethnicity. Not that there aren't patterns and broad trends. Uh, there certainly are. But I, but I get emails, and very rarely do people tell me who and what they are. Um, they usually say that their, their gender and their age and whether they're gay or straight and stop. I think we've got time for like one more. Let's take this one on the aisle here. The awesome responsibility of the last question. Don't fuck this up. We're hoping for something slightly comical, highly moving, pithy, and memorable. And succinct. <laughs> Would anyone else like to try instead? No, okay, please. So the question was about Ken Melman, who spearheaded George W. Bush's re-election campaign, which succeeded in part by getting a lot of anti-gay measures on ballots around the country to turn out the social conservatives who voted George W. Bush back into a second term. After Bush left office, Ken Melman came out, put a lot of money and effort and clout into the Prop 8 and DOMA cases, and the question is, should he get a pass? Is that right? I'm curious, do you, you know, know Ken Melman? Have you talked I, I to him? I haven't met Ken Melman. We've exchanged a few emails and said that we should meet and talk sometime. Um, I think Ken Melman is on a worldwide uh, apology tour and karma restoration act. Uh, and he needs karma restoration after 2004. No one believes that Ken Melman didn't know he was gay in 2004 when he was running George Bush's um, re-election campaign. And with Karl Rove, whose father apparently was gay also, um, pushing all these anti-gay marriage amendments to drive turnout for social conservatives. And may have that sort of gay bashing may have, that Ken Melman organized may have won the election for George W. Bush. Um, Does he get a pass? Not yet. Uh, I think he gets the ability to uh, make amends, and Ken Melman is out there, and he is making amends, and he is... Uh, pouring his political skill and energy and using his connections to undo some of the damage that Ken Melman did. And I think that eventually he will earn that pass, not that he needs it. Like Ken Melman doesn't need my approval to be Ken Melman and live his life and suck a million dicks if that's what he wants to do now that he's out. Um, what he did was, you know, what a lot of closeted conservatives have done, what Larry Craig did. Uh, what Ted Haggard did, uh, protected his closet by beating up other queers, because how could you think this guy was gay when he is beating up queers? Um, that takes a lot of amends making uh, to um, earn your way back into the good graces of the people that you harmed. And I think maybe Ken Melman does get a pass because it's palpable that he senses, um, that he's aware of the damage that he did. Um, and he's aware of his complicity um, and the sort of damage he did to people um, running George W. Bush's re-election campaign. And as a Catholic, uh, still to this day, sort of culturally Catholic, I appreciate someone who did something terrible and has the good sense to feel awful about it. (laughs) And Ken Melman clearly feels awful about it and is doing what he can now to make it up to us. And the history of the gay rights movement, um, you know, going back to the beginning and, you know, my parents and everybody else and Rob Portman is people realizing that they were wrong and trying to make it up to their kids or their community um, as best they can. Uh, And so maybe Ken Melman does get a pass now because he is pushing so hard to bring the GOP around on this issue um, and marshalling a lot of money. I don't think we would have gotten gay marriage in New York but for... uh, in part, Ken Melman's contribution in marshalling money uh, and effort and GOP uh, activists and GOP politicians 
um, in support of same-sex marriage and marriage equality in New York. So obviously I'm ambivalent because I'm like talking out of both sides of my mouth about Ken Melman. Um, I wish he had taken a stand in 2004 and quit and come out then. But he's doing what he can now to make up for that. And we have to welcome that. We have to embrace that. Otherwise, we're cutting off our noses despite our faces. Thank you, Dan Savage. Thank you, Ari. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. A big thank you to Ari Shapiro for coming all the way to Washington State, all the way to Seattle and Town Hall to sit down and have that talk with me. I really enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed it, too. And a big special thanks to KUOW for recording this show, the conversation with Ari Shapiro and for letting us play it here. And thanks to Cameron Drews, who uh, engineered the the Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another usual, normal, regular installment of the Savage Lovecast with your questions. Thanks for downloading. <laughs> <laughs>